Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Women today. Uh, speaking of fabulous voices, it seems uh, somewhat unnecessary, to be honest, to give a long-winded introduction to my next guest, because his voice is so incredibly well-known and loved by listeners to this station and Radio TT, of course, as well. Um, say hello, Roy. Yes, not at Ramsey Hairpin. Uh, we're up here at the studio where it all happens. Uh, just looking back over the mountain, the past snow fell and thinking it's not too long since we'll be uh, positioned in our commentary position there at Ramsey Hairpin. And we're hoping to reflect on uh, all the items that are connected with motorcycling, golf and uh, just general life, the 71 years of existence. And uh, I did think I mentioned to you, Christy, it's all been centred around where I've lived, Mm -hmm. uh, how my life has gone. And certainly when you think back, uh, yeah, all those years ago at Park Avenue, 2nd of February, I was affectionately known as a war baby. And it was only uh, when I was about uh, 30 that people kind of reflected on a war baby. There was lots of war babies, people returning home after conflict, and 1947 was a, a very big year for births. So I think I was lucky in that respect that we were born into. But I had two brothers who were born a lot earlier, and certainly Ken was 11 years older than me, and uh, Brian, I think, was seven. And it was a big disappointment in the family because when I, they and probably parents announced that uh, they were having another child, which must have come as a cultural shock to them, and one was starting to go to school and the other one was at probably at Murray's Road that they were going to have an addition to the family. I know there was great disappointment on the 2nd of February 1947 when I wasn't a girl. <laughs> Uh, they, I think they were going to throw me back, but uh, they couldn't do that. But uh, or just put a frock on you, yeah, one or the other. So, yeah. Roy could have been Roseanne, but uh, fortunately for me, uh, we've gone through our life uh, unchanged as a thoroughbred male. <laughs> Oh, that's absolutely brilliant, Roy. Unmistakably, uh, as you may well have guessed, that is the voice of, of, of one Roy Moore. Uh, not just one of the best love commentators on the mountain course, as he was just saying, but of course, former Ireland golf champion as well and golf historian too. Now a video star as well with his Mountain Memory series online. I think that song, that Buggle song, the uh, video killed the radio star, is, isn't really appropriate in this, this uh, kind of instance here because people are loving watching you, Roy, in that series. They're really enjoying it. I wonder what it feels like now that people can actually put a face to that voice. It's quite interesting, actually, on one or two of the early comments. And uh, I don't know whether we haven't got a fan club as such. I think there's a people, oh, you do, Roy. people out there <laughs> that that they think they know you. And uh, it's been like it's like life in it. You know, when you see a face that you associate with a voice, you're either pleasantly surprised or totally disappointed. <laughs> And uh, there was one woman in particular that was on a comment. She said, oh, no, no, don't show his face. I've built up an image of what he looks like, and he doesn't look anything like he looks, (laughs) which is a typical Manx statement, like, isn't it? uh, It is, isn't it? I I think I had someone say to me once, you're taller than I thought you were. How on earth can he gauge someone? (laughs) But did you, as a kid then, did you used to spend lots of hours sort of sitting around the wireless and listening to, to, to voices? You had to. Uh, it was compulsory. Burnham Park Avenue, which is like two or three hundred yards from the start finish, born into a family where I had those two brothers. One, Ken, was just starting to become 
uh, involved in cycling. And I know for a fact, because of my age in relation to his, that he went on to become a top-of-the-range cyclist in the early 50s. And that's not hearsay, that's you look at the record books, and him and a chap called uh, Alec Coward rewrote the record books, one particular 53, I think it was, on the cycling records. Ken was good on the longer distances, Alec was good over the shorter distances, the 25 miles. Those of you familiar with cycling, 25 miles is from Quarterbridge out to the Hope at St John's and back, and you do that four times, and I think it uh, works out. But then bear in mind at that particular time, I could we picture him going to the races from Park Avenue. We had other family. My mother and uh, Auntie Jessie, as we knew her, uh, were from a second marriage, and uh, certainly there was a close connection between Uncle Jack, Jack Cannell, and of course, everybody on the island will remember Jeff, Jeff Cannell. So they, he was a bit older than me as well, but despite the fact that I was of male origin and not female, I was dragged everywhere with Uncle Jack and Jeff. So early morning practices across the road at Park Avenue, and certainly up round the pits and in round the grandstand, Uncle Jack got you everywhere you shouldn't have been really, but at the same time uh, it brought into my mind so many memories and there's one in particular of an early, early morning practice it would be either 52 or 53 and we were only reflecting on it the other day about uh, Jeff Duke and Reg Armstrong on four cylinder Jaleeras and they didn't have the open megaphones you know the, the, the convex on the back of the bike these were straight through pipes and either Jeff Duke was showing Reg Armstrong round and I was there handcuffed, well not handcuffed, but I was in the hands of <laughs> Uncle Jack and Jeff would be usually sniffing around, getting autographs, pinching oil or whatever the case may be. And Jeff Duke and Reg Armstrong went through the start finish. And if I close my eyes now, I can picture th that sound. It seems daft to say you picture a sound, but the howl of eight cylinders of Italian Jalera, of the two of them going through and Uncle Jack remarking, uh, they're showing one another round. Uh, that that just stays with me. But it was so easy. You know, you, you got you look at loads of Castro flags. You got all the books that were there, and certainly it didn't do me any harm as regarding memory, because you can, on occasion, and it has been reflected in the mountain memories, uh, just delve into that memory and uh, bring something up which will pass the time. And I think genuinely people find it quite interesting. Well, they do. And, you know, not least because a lot of people who watch it who are on the island, some of them remember that time anyway, and it brings back great memories from them. But then, of course, you've got, because it's online, people off island are able to watch it too and reflect. But it's interesting you talk about the idea of picturing the sound because I think one of the reasons why people really enjoy your commentary when you're out there in your little home at the hairpin <laughs> is that you are able to convey the image of what you're looking at so well and so I wonder if part of it came from that do you think that sort of stood, stood you in good stead for that yeah probably was uh, you know I mean we, we had to watch uh, things on, on uh, I could never understand why every TT week and Grand Prix week we were dragged along to the picture house or the strand or the crescent or the numerous uh, places that no limit was shown and they would be saying there's Uncle Jack there's Uncle Jack Number 15, going up the Balahutch and weaving in between the, the other riders. He did that, Uncle Jack did that. 
So I'd probably be gathering visual images of what Uncle Jack was doing, you know, long before you, you became aware of, uh, like, kind of 57. We I watched Bob McIntyre do the first 100-mile-an-hour lap from Hotchkiss's nursery going past on eight laps. And we'd go to watch No Limit, and Uncle Jack would be in it, and he got paid in, in terms there, 1934, 35, a vast amount of money. He earned more in a day than he did in a week, and uh, it gave him a chance to, to kind of... Uh, further his motorcycling career because he rode in the Grand Prix uh, but had packed in or packed in after the war so he, he finished in 39 I think and didn't go back to it so but he was still a legend because he was in no limit and he did a crash scenes and all that and let's just put on record people say that's the door that George Formby went through at the Balacrane no way did George Formby go through that door it was somebody else, and Harold Rowell has put it uh, in real context in Terry Kringle's column, uh, and I can state categorically, well, whatever the word is, that uh, he didn't go through the door at the Balacrane. It was somebody else. But Jack Cannell, yeah, and he used to take us out on a Sunday afternoon, and he was a coach driver, and he would be talking and thing, and putting visual images into to people's mind, but mainly re relaying what you see and mm -hmm. trying, not trying to make it exciting. If it isn't exciting, you can't jazz it up. But the majority of things that we've been involved in on commentary have been exciting. There's another piece of advice uh, handed out by uh, Bill Jackson, who was the father of uh, Alan Budd and Tom and, and also Bob. Uh, Bob, unfortunately, not racing now, but... He said to me when I said to him uh, that I'd had a chance to get involved in the commentary and it was Charlie Webster from Manx Radio who offered me the job first at Ballacrane. He said, I don't care what you say. Well, I think it was a bit of a Geordie, so we won't do a Geordie accent. But he said, I don't care what you're doing, Moot, he said. But he said, make sure that you get all the numbers through Ramsey Hairpin or Ballacrane as it was where we went to. He said, because if I'm listening in on the radio up at the grandstand and while Bob goes through... He said, I want to know that I can relax until the next position and knowing that he's still circulating on the course. And that's another thing we've been very, very conscious of. Don't go waffling on about a story about 1956 or something like that. You've got to, even if you only shout out the number, the instant relief that you get when you hear and 36 is through Ramsey Herpin. And of course, it's come to fruition never in my wildest dreams did I think I would have a son riding in the Manx Grand Prix? But having paced up and down round the grandstand, the back of the grandstand, in for a cup of coffee, and just generally uh, kind of listening to the radio just for that one sound or the thing of saying safely through Ballacrane or whatever the case may be, yeah, it's absolutely true. Well, it's wonderful hearing these memories, Roy, but one of the things we're also doing today is sharing some of your music choices. So uh, let's get your first record on. What are we going to hear first and why? It was difficult, it's difficult to say in it when, you, when you've got a reasonable bank account now, but in the early days of life, it was tough going. Uh, there was no kind of... Uh, you had to work for everything you got. And my mother... Uh, me two brothers were they they left home well i thought they'd left home they got on this thing called national service and i didn't see them for ages 
and she took a job. When Ken came back, he was a, an absolute top-of-the-range electrician, uh, served as apprenticeship, but there was no work, and he had to go down to Peel, but he never drove. So he went to Peel and didn't come back, and uh, certainly... He got a, a, a down there. There was the snack bar or the, on the on the main kind of drag through the promenade, and the souvenir shop. And he was working in there. But my mother, to make ends meet, had to go down, so she had to bring me with her. And there was a jukebox in there, and Metal Hughes and my sister-in-law Betty Betty Kinley, down at Peel there had a, a magic system. If, if you went round the back of it and pressed a couple of buttons, you'd get a few records on for free. And uh, Dream Lover by Bobby Darren was, was one that I... And Diana by Paul Anker. But I think uh, Bobby Darren's Dream Lover has got more kind of... Uh, yeah, it was classic record. And it'll always remind me of 1959. And meeting Eddie LaBelle, who arrived to ride in the TT on his BMW and had the first, what I called, American-style crash hat. And uh, that was it. So Peel, the snack bar, 59, Bobby Darren, Dream Lover. That is our first music choice from my studio guest this afternoon, who is unmistakably Roy Moore. It's a lovely choice, that, Roy. We've had some messages in. I'm just going to put some of them to you now. So, first of all, a uh, question for Roy. I want to get hold of some old recordings of the old Manx Grand Prix races. I've had no luck so far. Is there anywhere I can get hold of any? We have a few in, in our collection. I mean, you used to be a bit vain when you first started, or you, you, you learn from your mistakes and we've had a few of them over the years as well, but uh, we won't be talking mistakes, about They're not mistakes, they're no, called Roy-isms. No, Roy, Roy Moore-isms. <laughs> Roy Yeah, it's, uh, it's a legend kind of thing to, to be talking about, but uh, we have got a few in our collection because you used to kind of record off the radio onto tapes, mm-hmm. and uh, I've, I've actually got Nigel Barton's 1989 win and the newcomers from 84 because we started at Ballacrane in 1984 and uh, Manx Grand Prix simple reason that we got involved is because uh, Ian Cannell, who was an absolutely top-of-the-range broadcaster, uh, used to do the broadcast from the bungalow, and they were always looking for somebody to stand in because he was president of the Manx Motorcycle Club. So we uh, we got involved, and they tried various people, George Ferguson, Alan Jackson, Tom Kine from the... Yeah, I know the uh, the Curricks Well Life Park is in the news at the moment, but there was a director there, Tom Kind, he had a go at it. And uh, certainly Dennis Crane, former winner, used to go. But uh, Charlie Webster, as I say, was the man who gave me my opportunity because we'd done a little bit of reporting on the golf. So we did make recordings off the races, and I've got a few, but I haven't got the technical ability to to do what everybody else can and transfer them over to something that you can listen to. Well, I will put you in touch with this gentleman, uh, mm-hmm. Sean, and we'll see if we can sort something out. Uh, and also, you've just sort of answered G's question, who says, how many years have you have you commentated on the TT since 84? Um, and also, this was a lovely message that came in from Tina, and it's when we were talking about how you're so able to convey 
images and pictures with your speech so that those who can't see the races are still able to sort of really feel what's going on. And Tina said, can you please ask, does he have any advice for a 15-year-old doing their English exams in a couple of weeks? Because when he speaks, it's seamless no matter what the subject. How on earth could you get that from your head down onto paper? In the early days, it was a little bit difficult. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't in the top of the range at school. I wasn't out in the hut. People will be known what meaning out in the hut means at Balakameen. I was middle range and uh, didn't have much ability, but I could always kind of write a story. I didn't, uh, adding up was useless. The ABC, not very good. Timble Street, the main road, hadn't taught me all that well, or I wasn't interested, or I was just thick. We weren't quite sure which uh, which category we fell into. But certainly that was the case, that if you, if you kind of write stories, then, yeah, maybe the speech side of it follows on from that. Interesting. And you mentioned um, education there. You actually told me that you feel that your true education, you mentioned the golf briefly, came in Douglas, Douglas Golf Club. Um, dare I ask more? <laughs> no, well, we started off at Timble Street School because, again, uh, circumstances said the Park Avenue had to be sold after the death of my grandmother. Again, being in the second family, it was my mother and Auntie Jessie who looked after me gran in the later stages of her life. About 1956, she died. So at uh, seven, eight years of age, I was commuting between Park Avenue and Six Lee Terrace. But that was another kind of chapter or start of a chapter of my life because you got involved in everything virtually you can see out through the window. Yeah, Lee Terrace, no no traffic on the roads up and down there on push on bikes trying to learn how to ride a bike. If you had a walk, you walked either down to the harbour, across the harbour on the the ferry up to Douglas Head. And uh, the ferry was always good value. I think it was about a penny for the trip. And you got entertained by a fella on a fiddle or an accordion. And I think it was the state of the sea that guaranteed which he was going to play. It might be easier to play an accordion when it's a bit rough than than trying to strike the notes on a fiddle. But uh, they were legends. And then off there and then up through here to Douglas Head and certainly all the things that went on in and around here, the amusement arcade and the black and white minstrels, I suppose, is the technical term you would use in this day and age for the Perio shows or the whatever they were on the open air theatre out the back. And then you'd walk out Marine Drive but again, as stated previously, we didn't have any money to get on trams or pay for anything. But there was thousands and thousands of holidaymakers who did. And of course, unknown to me, when we were coming up round here, we were in the vicinity of a golf course, Fort Anne. Connected with the Fort Anne Hotel. And uh, certainly the Kit Kat Bar is another place that people remember. Halfway up Head Road on the left-hand side, and it was difficult to understand when you were young how people were enjoying themselves, being able hardly to stand after a vast input of nut brown or pale ale from Castletown uh, pub. But certainly all things like that. And you could always tell the seasons of the year because the rowing boats would be either going up Lee Terrace to the boat field in the nunnery or coming back down. When they were going up, you knew the summer had ended. When they were coming back down, you knew they'd been all painted, turned upside down and painted. Interesting fact that every rowing boat that passed Lee Terrace on its way up was always a girl's name. Oh. Girls' names on rowing boats. 
Well, they, no they, they do call them, the ships are, are female, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, so, yeah, all ships are female. And, uh, yeah, you'd be have the, the Reed Shows and the Griffiths and the Kennishes and all that. Uh, going walking up Lee Terrace, no cars, pots of paint in their hand, coming back down, and job done, and uh, off for a pint at uh, the very, very many kind of uh, hotels or pubs that were available in and around the quay. Well, you're painting such marvellous pictures for us, Roy. It's absolutely brilliant. We're getting some lovely text messages in as well. If you'd like to text, uh, you can send them to 166177 or you can email studio at manxradio.com. Delighted to say Roy is with us until three o'clock, so we have plenty more time with him and some more music coming up as well after the break. The Nation Station. Women today. It's just gone 2.36 and uh, we are having a fabulous time on the Conister Rock with Roy Moore this afternoon. We've had some lovely messages in as well. Uh, Pam knows very well what the huts at Balakameen School were. She even puts a lol in there. Uh, she says she was another war baby born in 46. I think don't go any further with that. Let's just leave that there, Pam. Uh, Moots, Roy's good on the yodelling after a few German beers. Is that true? Could be said, yeah. When you're... Over- Whatever stays away from home stays away from home. Froberg, I think, whoever's referring to that. Yep. Uh, wouldn't take much to work out, I wouldn't have thought. Yeah, we had a good time over there. and hosp- German hospitality, uh, very good indeed. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't the best from a racing point of view, but certainly the, uh, the many memories that we had from our trip to Germany or the couple of trips we've made to Germany are, yeah, pretty good. My nephew went out there and certainly... Uh, is well established out there with family, but in constant touch, just being to Le Mans with the Pence 13 team and the, the boys put the bike on the podium into third. He's part of the team that services it and uh, certainly the team that rode it uh, unexpectedly put it into third position, so they'll be absolutely made up. But his big ambition now will be getting back on the Isle of Man, the place of his birth, for the TT and, uh, it's fast approaching as well, isn't it? Certainly is. Yeah, yeah certainly is. Well, it's fascinating because we've talked about the bikes, obviously. There's clearly a really strong family connection throughout the generations with you and bikes. And yet, you actually say that the best move you made was golf, which uh, some people will know, some people won't necessarily know if they're just fans of TT. You suggested that I should ask you about your first ever golf shot. Well, again, going back to the, the sequence, we'd, we'd gone from Park Avenue to Lee Terrace. My grandmother had died. There was no house down there for us. And everybody rented. So the next thing, the tribe were heading up to above Ernest Kelly's on Prospect Terrace and another circle of friends in and around there. And there was the famous Maggie Spitz chip shop by Hemmingsley the chemist. And there used to be an Irish lad called Sean he used to come over every year and Johnny Wardle and Peter Wardle and Alan Halsall, all the boys round there, all good lads and terrific area because Deemster, Carouche and all them, they lived up Wesley Terrace, Danny Shimon was round that area. And one day, I don't know who I was with, but they all decided they were going to go up to the pitch and put at Nobles Park. Picture it as it is now, it's just a vast amount of tarmac by the Marshall's Hut and the Manx Grand Prix office. But that was an 18-hole pitch-and-put golf course. And uh, certainly you went up by the hut, by the cattery there, paid your money and then queued with hundreds of others to go round 18 holes with what probably would be, in modern terms, a seven-iron and a putter. 
and you had to put it on a wad of sand, the ball that you were given, which probably would have been a remodeled Spitfire, and then you hit it at one of the greens, and then finally you put it down the hole. And that was the first ever golf shot I hit. We'd gone up with the boys, paid our sixpence or whatever it was to have a round of golf. And then the interesting story about it is that uh, that particular pitch and putt was totally transferred to what was affectionately known as the donkey fields down on Upper Dukes Road. And that operated as an 18-0 golf course. And later on in life, uh, we moved from pro down to Prospect Terrace, so that was the first shot at golf. We went to Onken then, so golf took a back seat really. But then when we moved to Spring Valley in the close vicinity of what was in my day, and always will be to be fair, the 14th, I've got to think now after the remodelling of the course as to what hole it is. I think it's the 12th, but it used to be the 14th and 15th, and out there we'd go. And we joined the club and we did you know, the, the right things, the proper things. Alfie Rigby was a great instigator of me playing the 18-hole uh, venue, the big course as we called it. But uh, he was a regular friend of mine going round the pitch and put which is in the area that uh, I, I look out now through my back window, having lived in Victoria Avenue for 45 years, and watch the dogs doing what they do on the uh, the dog walking area and yeah, people well, picking it up. We won't take that any further, <laughs> that's fine. Right. But that, and then it started you on a fantastic journey because of one Island Golf Championship in 68, you qualified a further 22 times, and you've got... A fantastic number of achievements under your belt across various different uh, areas. So, for instance, you became the captain of the Douglas Golf Club, president of Isle of Man Golf. You've raised thousands of pounds for charity. Uh, we've been talking about all your achievements in the TT. There's plenty more to come. But you have this real sort of humility and modesty about you. And I'm just picking up on it on what you're saying just now, because... You have that, that habit where instead of saying using first person and saying, I've done this, I've done that, you say, we. And it's something I've noticed that I've heard racers do this as well. And I wonder where that comes from, because to me, it sort of puts across that idea that you're very modest and, you know, sort of you're not sort of trumpeting your own achievements. But where does that come from? Yeah, well, I've had some terrific friends uh, made over the years and a lot of them are reflected in the choice of music, really, to be fair. And uh, certainly I can think of things. But uh, everybody, again, for the reasons stated, we were all scratching. There was no money. You know, you were, you were earning three and four pound a week. And when I decided I was going to play golf, to his eternal credit, uh, Charlie Turner at the Sports Emporium in Duke Street said to me, if you come down every Friday night, because how was I going to afford a set of clubs? I couldn't pay for them direct. It was just like when I went into motorcycle trials. I couldn't buy a bike. I had to go through the Conister, like everybody in the Isle of Man, as my age has probably done. Got it on the Conister, yes, sir. You know, so much a week and so much down. But he said to me, he said, if you come down here every Friday night, he says, you can have whatever clubs you want, I'll trust you. And I did that. And I got a full set of clubs and we started playing at Douglas. And, uh, yeah, we didn't do too bad, really, to be fair. We moved up through the ranks. But it's hard to reflect that when you were playing golf in the early days, it was a very rich man's sport. And they didn't encourage the poorer people to play. Everything was on a Thursday. Why? The shops were shut. The lawyers had half a day. Weekends were totally out of the question. 
And I suppose uh, with being kind of from a poor background, uh, maybe you were resented if you had an ability because you weren't supposed to be good when you were poor. And that was reflected in every sport, really. But uh, we managed to break through and uh, we got our clubs from Charlie Turner's, uh, which I say I'm entirely grateful for for the rest of my life. And I reminded him about it when he was alive as well. And certainly started playing at Douglas and uh, got better. And then 68, we had the big win. Totally oh. unexpected. My mother and father had come out. I was four down very quickly in the, in the game and then kind of fought back to all square playing the 18th and managed to hold a big long putt and uh, he was the first person who rushed onto the green modest as he was in these situations but Jeff Cannell oh, yeah, wonderful not to working at Manx Radio at the time just an ordinary spectator and uh, it was it's interesting too the connection that uh, I had a long time friend in Goo Owen who caddied for me in the early days because him and Dougie Baird, we'd played golf together and certainly said, I'll caddy for you in the championship. And 65, I qualified for the first time. And he took the SO Petroleum wagon down to Ramsey Golf Course and parked it up and came out and seen how I was doing. I'd qualified and then came down to caddy for me on the, the Thursday and was part of the big win in 1968. And there's a lovely picture which Bill Peters took of the putt going in on the 18th and then the crowd scene roundabout. And again, it's uh, it's memorable. Well, we'll try and get hold of a copy of that photo if we can, but we're rapidly running out of time, so let's have another little bit of music from you. We've got a tremolos now. Why are we hearing this one? Dave Wade was a, a man who became friendly with. We took up motorcycling together in the sidecars. He ran the pig farm out at Ellenbrook. Yeah, health and safety went by the board when they were running a pig farm. They used to pick the bins up along the promenade and I used to give him a hand and he was a really good friend of mine. Rifle shooting we went at Douglas and darts and golf as well and died far too young. But he'd, he'd renovated an MG magnet and uh, done it from nut to bolt and for whatever reason we were going up the arches. Uh, we were always people who went out you know, kind of socialising, but we were all Macaulay Culkins, really. We all went home alone. And uh, coming up there, and the only kind of pop music you could get was on Radio Luxembourg. So with Dave Wade, probably one or two others, going up under the arches, uh, which is down there, Palace Terrace, and certainly in the background was on Radio Luxembourg, uh, Silence is Golden by the Tremolos, which will always remind me of him. Tremolos, another choice from my studio guest this afternoon, Roy Moore. We'll be chatting more with him after this. The Nation Station, Radio. Women today. <laughs> Sorry, I've just been chatting in the background to my studio guest and got slightly distracted there. Just had a lovely text message in, Roy Moore. It's a very nice one. It doesn't say who it is, unfortunately. So if you want to text back and let us know, we'd love to hear from you a bit. They say, best afternoon show ever. Well done, Roy. Fabulous music too. 
Life must be at home. <laughs> Probably. I've got to ask you, though, we mentioned fabulous music. How difficult was it for you? Because already we've realised we've run out of time, we're not going to be able to do all of your music, but how difficult was it for you to narrow it down to just a few songs? I think in in the kind of 60s, 70s, when everything was happening in your life, you know, sporting-wise, uh, we didn't always go home alone. I had to go down south to get uh, to get, to get hitched up down to the Bellevue listening to Dave Saunders and Jigsaw down there, or part of Jigsaw and Stu Lowe on the disco, down to the Bellevue and uh, married a girl from Ballasalla. Had to go over the bridge to get hitched. 44 years ago, I hope, uh, we, we did that, If you If you're wrong, you'll be in the bad books when yeah, you get back. Yeah, two brothers were still about. Uh, unfortunately, I lost both of them within the space of six months in '96 but uh, certainly produced some lovely memories and I'm glad they were there. My mother, mum and dad had gone long before that, so they weren't, at the, well, my mother was at the wedding, but certainly my dad. One of my kind of uh, things, he was born in Glen May and certainly out in that part of the world when he was born, there was all kinds of activity and he used to be talking about Knock Halo. And again, when you're younger, just like my pair now, don't listen to their dad, oh, here he goes again. Turn the telly up, we want kind to want to hear him and all that. I never listened to what he had to say about all the stories round Glen May, Patrick and Doby, about all what he got up to and various other things. So that was probably a disappointment. But the music side of things, yes, you remember then and you know, out court and a lot of our the, the, the group of friends that, that I was with, Joe Boyd and all that, uh, they they they've survived marriages of a long time as well. I was best man at Joe's wedding. And that was before I got married. And he went on to become president of the Gulf Union as well. So, yeah, there must have been something happened, even though we were poor and destitute. Uh, the music, but you're happy though, Roy. Yeah, That's the music the thing, bound us together, didn't it? Well, you speaking know. of, because we are sort of running at a short of time, let's introduce your next piece of music so we can at least make sure we get a bit of this. It's Simon and Garfunkel. Why have you chosen this one? Well, again, it was the 70s. And, uh, yeah, when you'd found your future life, and partner well then you used to go to all the places together and down to the coach and horses in Lexi the man and folk in the background would be on on a Saturday night loud and very very good and then Bill Crisp would take over the DJ and down there and yeah probably there was no way you could get out of it ever went on fire and it was all you know thing but everybody who was important in your life was there with you and uh, we always used to kind of get, I don't know what it was, but uh, Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Water. When you listen to the lyrics of it, uh, yeah, certainly very appropriate. When you're weary Feeling small Just one of the most beautiful pieces of music, wonderfully chosen by Roy Moore this afternoon. Roy, I can't believe we're wrapping up already. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to throw some quick fire questions at you. Okay, right. First of all, where is your favourite place to watch the races? Don't get much chance, really. And that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah, and, and to get information and stuff, and uh, you've got to be up and round the grandstand, not talking to anybody, just observing, and uh, can be used at a future date. If there's time, 
doing the TT commentary in Grand Prix is a 52 week a year job because people might get all emotional about people that won't be there for the next year's races but you've got to make a note of it so I have a little book and I just put things down and uh, then it kickstarts a conversation which then kickstarts your brain which in turn somebody said oh I'm disappointed you've got a book I thought you remembered all this from the top of your head I do but it's like doing a speech at an after dinner function you've got to have a punchline before you can go into the real story and you have many a punchline Roy Moore I have to say okay uh, if you had to choose golf or bikes golf yeah I've been absolutely blessed with the, the number of friends I, I mentioned before about taught at Balakameen High School educated at Douglas Golf Club and I've been there for a, a number of years 50 odd years I think I've been well more than that probably 60 odd years I've been down Douglas and uh, some terrific friends down there as well and seen the changes, the new clubhouse, the different ways are, but uh, the Mackenzie Ross uh, design has stayed the test of time and yeah, really good. Oh, well, do you know what, Roy? It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. And because we have uh, sadly run out of time to play all your songs, what we're going to do, I'm going to hold you back after the show and I'm going to record an extra little bit with you so we can have a further chat and hear another of your songs. And I'll put that on onto the uh, Facebook and YouTube and portal pages afterwards. And if you've missed any of today's show, we will have the whole thing online for you to listen to afterwards. But thank you so much for all of your messages coming in. Uh, Brian as well says, it's so enjoyable. Let's have part two. Well, I'll do as much as I can. But just for the time being, Roy Moore will hear more of you in TT but for now introduce your final piece of music for us please yeah it's uh, it's a, an, a probably not very often heard Beatles track and Linda Cannell Jeff's uh, widow is not too well at the moment so Zoe is uh, kind of roundabout but she chose it was a private funeral Jeff's and I was asked to say a few words which I was not happy to do, you're never happy to say anything at a funeral, but uh, we had to capture the the spirit of the man, as it were, and there was there was a select people there, but Zoe had come up with a, a track, which you always kind of associate with it. Yeah, Songbird by Kenny G was the, the one for Brian, but up there at the crematorium, as he was arriving to the crematorium, Riding in the TT races was getting played on the organ by Mr. Ratcliffe, as he probably would just be going past the grandstand, so all appropriate. And then we all sat back and had our own memories of Jeff with uh, the Beatles. And we're all going to follow the sun one day. And it says again in the words about one day you look and find I'm gone. And I'll be gone in a minute. <laughs> oh, Roy, that is such a beautiful way to wrap it up. Thank you so much for being with us. And we look forward to hearing plenty more of you during the TT. But for now, a perfect way to end the show. One day you'll look to see I've gone. For tomorrow may rain, so I'll follow the sun. Women today. Off air. We're just talking normally, so that would be uh, the way they'll get to get the level. That's and the needles will be bouncing up and down and various things will be happening. But you will adjust to suit and we'll be back with you later. Adjusted to suit and ready to go.
<laughs> Roy, we are carrying on our chat because uh, we spent a wonderful hour with you on the Conister Rock sharing music and memories. But we just simply ran out of time because you have a lot of wonderful things to say. So I'm going to just carry on our chat a little bit. Um, just just before we came into this other studio, we were talking to Alex there who'd taken over from us in Studio One and you were remembering coming up here doing sports quizzes. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was just a memory that you get when you stu- uh, sat up here looking out over the bay. I don't know what era it would be, but certainly I can remember coming up with a, very, a couple of teams, really, to, to do the Peter Neal Sports Quiz. And he was the chairman, obviously, in charge, and various sporting organisations around the island would uh, would put teams in. Some were quite serious, and others were treating it as a bit of a, a, a night out in Douglas. But certainly they were good entertainment. Uh, Peter would be asking the questions which he'd compiled and we'd all be sat in our respective teams across looking at the opposition and then they would ask a question to each team and you had to answer it. And Wally McAvoy, who was a legend at Manx Radio, with the glasses on and there would have a a tape recorder like a dustbin with a a motorbike wheel as the, the tape holder and he'd record it all and give the thumbs up and say, yeah, that's good, we'll uh, we'll go with that one. But as I say, some were treating it a little bit serious and uh, there was always good fun when one team got a question which the other team knew and then you'd have a stab at a, a, an answer and uh, you were better. I remember coming up with my brother Brian once in a team which would probably be from the golf club and we didn't have a clue about some uh, uh, athletics question that was asked and who were the five people who were competed in this, that and the other. And he said that after we'd kind of exhausted all the bits and pieces, he said it wasn't uh, Dave, D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick and Titch, was it? <laughs> and it wasn't live on air, but it certainly went down well when it was recorded. Now, you mentioned DJing. You did used to do a bit of DJing any time and you were listening to uh, Tony Brown, who's a former guest on, on the Conister Rock, talking about his days as well. Uh, what do you remember of that? Yeah, well, Tony Brown, there's a, there's a trophy down at the Southern 100, which is presented for, I think it's JC's Disco. And that was, uh, I'm pretty confident it was JC's. And him and Tony Jones, I think, ran a disco down there at Morton Hall or somewhere in Castletown. And uh, certainly there was a few legends on the DJ circuit that uh, were here, there and everywhere. But there was plenty of uh, opportunity for them and you get paid as much as 25 quid. We were always classed as being where we weren't. Somebody said to me one night, he said, I know you're not cheap, but you're crap. <laughs> Which is, goes down quite well, really, doesn't it, when you, you think you're doing your best. But at the same time, uh, yeah, it was it, we we did it for kind of familiar organisations, where you could have a bit of banter with them, and they knew you weren't going to let them down when it came to to all the the bits and pieces that went after. Instead of just saying Buffy's being served shortly, and uh, Peter Kay's, you know, DJ, and then you find out he really talks like that. <laughs> Oh, it's brilliant. And, you know, we talked a bit as well about how it must have been difficult for you to choose the music because you clearly are someone who loves your music as well. And there was a song that we didn't have time to play in the show. So so just introduce this one for us and we'll hear a little bit of this one now. Majority of people used to work during the summer 
they'd have their daytime job. I was up at Billy Long's nursery and then we would take jobs behind the bar or waiting on and everybody did it just as a survive or at the end of the summer have a good holiday. It was the first year the Hawaiian bar had opened down there in Douglas underneath the Palace Hotel and the Hawaiian theme. The Shades were the group and they played golf so we got to know them quite well. Would you believe there was a limbo dancer called Stretch Wilcox? But to attract the customers in, they had uh, yeah fairly good-looking waitresses. And there was two riders, Bill Ivey and Mike Halewood, who can be mentioned now, probably, who used to be regular visitors to the Hawaiian bar. In fact, Bill Ivey took them out in his Porsche one night, a, a waitress called Flo, and uh, they had a right pile up at uh, Grieber Castle. And I was only looking at the report in the paper. He got fined a vast amount of £12, but he wrote the Porsche off. And uh, Flo was saying the next night how she was horrified, screaming in this Porsche as Ivy was driving like a lunatic and Haywood encouraging him. And they went round Griever Castle and lost it, and he wrote the Porsche off. And certainly uh, it was one of those things. But it was 1967, and this particular track was number one. So having to go to work, we had to watch then what they call the production TT at the bottom of Bray Hill. And uh, there was three classes, the 750, 500 and the 250. So we took advantage of, before we went to the Hawaiian bar, of watching. And John Hartle, who I think was Jeff Cannell's favourite rider, uh, won the 750 class. And then out of the blue came a manxman, Neil Kelly, on uh, Dodkin's 500 Velocette to win the 500 class. I was on my Triumph Tiger Cub going to work, so after we'd watched them at the bottom of Bray Hill, we nipped round because Tommy Robb and Bill Smith were absolutely together all the way round on superior Bull Taco Matralas, and nobody could decide who was going to win because it was a kind of virtual mass start between them. So I went to Governor's Bridge, and I watched them coming out of Governor's Bridge, and down Glen Crutchy Road they went, and Bill Smith got it by a fraction of a second over Tommy Robb. But every time I hear uh, White A Shade of Pale by Procol Harum, not only am I reminded of that, but I'm reminded about the battle between Agostini and Halewood uh, later on in the week when they were going at it really uh, together and all the stories that have been related in the mountain memories about Halewood's pit stop and everything like that. But I had a, a, a pass that was given to me by Ray Ennett, who was working at Douglas Corporation at the time, and whose brother was Derek Ennett, who tragically lost his life and would have been probably in there amongst them, the ability he had. He gave me a pass so I could get into the very Hinton's nursery at the bottom of Bray Hill later on in the week. And number one at the time was A Whiter Shade of Pale by Procol Harum. We skip the
shade of pale and we did hear that one lyric there but as you pointed out Roy the rest of the lyrics don't really make a whole lot of sense do they no it's only the situation as a professional I should probably lift your microphone oh well that probably could be better some people would say turn it down but uh, if you lift it up it'll be uh, good yeah the waiter brought a tray tray of what if it was at the Hawaiian bar be a tray of drinks of Hawaiian cocktails which allegedly were supposed to have alcohol in them but for those who were manufacturing behind the bar, it was a rare treat if you ever got anywhere near alcohol in your Hawaiian specials. But yeah, it was just, uh, yeah, just, I suppose, I don't know whether I did or didn't in the original context of the programme live on air mention about uh, my, I mentioned the other fella, Peter. Uh, again, when you're talking about greenkeeping and stuff like that, he's... Uh, He's risen to the ranks, although he's lapped the uh, mountain course at over 110 miles per hour uh, last year. I know it's in today's 133s, it's maybe not, but certainly he's built his way up and uh, certainly we're very, very proud of his achievements. Now head greenkeeper at Wentworth West and possibly will be mentioned on the television when the tournament, the BMW professional tournament, goes to Wentworth at the end of next month at the end of May and then of course we're doing a house renovation at the moment for son number two Kevin and uh, I'm very proud of the fact that uh, he has won the golf championship on two occasions and qualified not quite as many times as me but he quick to remind me that he's won it twice not just the once and 2004 and 2013 and again, very, very proud moments and putting us in a, an elite bracket of uh, father and sons. Uh, Sid and Bill Ashworth are up there as the first. And then Mark and Julian Sutton. Julian Sutton just put everybody into the weeds with eight championship wins. But they too are father and sons who have won championships. And then, uh, of course, me, one times, as he called me. <laughs> and uh, two times, as he's called so uh, the Moors are in there, and, and in the 1926 it all started. So there's quite a long career of championships. Well, you're um, clearly very proud of your family, um, not just your sort of new family, your own family, but, but generations past as well. And you have a very interesting link with a, a recently uh, commemorated famous Manxie, don't you? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's from my mother's and Auntie Jess's side that uh, going back in the, the history, it was a great, great, great uncle of mine. So what make that makes them to them, I'm not quite sure. But I'm sure if you consulted Bob Stimson, he has done a like an absolute encyclopedia of the life of William Kinnishar in. And uh, it is a chequered career. He was a brilliant manxman. Manx is the hills, you said, born and mackled, and uh, emigrated to that there, America, after serving a bit of time in Liverpool, learning his trade, and rose up through the ranks to be a ship's carpenter. We could do with him now, really, on Kevin's house renovation if he was available, (laughs) but uh, it's not going to work out like that. Probably wouldn't turn up if the modern trades are the way anything to go by. 
but uh, he certainly went up and devised the route for the Panama Canal. Came back to the island, uh, was imprisoned in Castle Russian. It's all there in Bob's book. But uh, he went off uh, back to America and then died a pauper. And they kept his body for about seven years or so. That then planted in an unmarked grave, if that's the technical term you use for being buried. And Bob uh, checked all the records and there was no recognition. So now, through his efforts, and we were there when it all happened, uh, it is a recognised site in Greenwood Cemetery, Brooklyn. And we, we all went to America last year to, to do that unveiling. And Very emotional, really. And uh, certainly it was through the efforts of Bob Stimson, I must say, and be prior to him, Freddie Cowell from Ramsey, that the life of William Kinnish has been now officially recognised by Timbald. And speaking of the idea of crafts and, and tradesmen and building, you actually spent some time in the building trade yourself as well, didn't you, with your brother? And you mentioned the fact that it gives you a real sense of humour, and that is certainly something that comes through in your speech, whether it's the commentary for the TT or when you're talking about anything, to be honest, you, you seem to have preserved that real sense of humour. It's important to you, isn't it? You know, there's no escape on a building site. We worked for many years to two venues, really, the Crescent, Crescent Hotel when it was converted, uh, not into its current state, I, I hasten to add, when it was the amusement arcade and prior to that a cinema. If you wanted to watch No Limit, well, you'd probably go there. The guns are never own. We're blasting away for most of the summer or where eagles dare. But we converted the floor through and Derry Kizik's book, uh, it's really good, the content of his, about the, the time he spent there with Percy Wilson and Desi Collins in the canteen where you, you had to have a sense of humour, whether it was uh, making it or taking it. And certainly that is, is good and uh, just truly, yeah, you just character building, I think, would be the, the way you'd describe it. Well, I think you are most definitely a character yourself, Roy, and uh, we very much look forward to hearing the rest of your commentary on TT in just a, a few weeks' time now. I can't believe how rapidly it's approaching. Yeah, it is. And, yeah, the, the, the speculation at the moment, uh, John McGuinness looks as though he's out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know whether they've printed the programme at the moment, but uh, Hutchie a doubt. Yep. Sadly, Bruce Anstey and our thoughts go out to him off Manx kind of origin as well from Andrus and the Isle of Man, and certainly, uh, you know, all the, the numbers that they would be running at if they didn't take up the option, it would be one, four, and five. So what they're going to do on the start list uh, remains to be seen, but total disappointment if they don't make it, but there'll still be a few that will be creeping up there as well. Could we see a Manx win? Connor Cummins, Dan Neen? But you've got to be looking probably at the moment no further than Michael Dunlop, but uh, mechanical trouble has played a lot of uh, part in TTs in the past. And, uh, yeah, the crowd think it's all over, but uh, it is now. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shaw.com. Love being 
Terms and conditions apply.